Thanks, worship team. Welcome, everybody. It's, it's nice to see actual faces, and it's also really, it's so exciting for me to know that people, lots of them outside of this building, can connect with us this morning. I'm excited to have you here, and I'm excited about the sermon, and I'm wondering about it. I mean, how to transform a country. I mean, that's a big title. I mean, you know, when you decide to say that, you are deciding to say something really big. And so the first question as I've grappled with that is this. Isn't that just an arrogant pipe dream? Isn't it just an arrogant pipe dream for, for a preacher of a, of a, a medium-sized church in a, in, a, you know, in a small country in the big picture of the world? To, to start a series with a title like How to Transform a Country. Is that an arrogant pipe dream? It may be. Because, because let's face it, given the history of Christians and often the church, and, and, and given the history of when Christians become kind of a dominant force in a country, we don't always do that well. Given the history of, of countries claiming to be Christian nations or nations built on Christian principles that end up invading other countries and just subduing their population or end up in the name of the gospel creating colonies where where people's lives are worse afterwards than before. Given the idea that, that sometimes Christ, countries claim to be Christians and yet despise the weak and the poor, where a country can claim to be Christian and end up with something like apartheid, or a country can claim to be Christian and end up building an economy on slavery, or a country can claim to be Christian and end up with a genocide like in Rwanda and Burundi. I mean, you know, <laughs> don't go there, John. Given the other side of that is that often how insignificant we actually are. The fact that we're just ordinary people, that we don't necessarily have these big platforms. Is it really fair for me and for our church to launch a series that claims we know how to transform a country? I really think it is. I, I really think it is not an arrogant pipe dream. I think it can be, but I don't think it is if we know where we're going. If we're going, this isn't about us knowing the political solutions. This isn't us about us having more power than another group of people so we'll force them to be the way we want them to be. If it's not about us or about me, then I, I, I genuinely believe that, that you and Ah, and that our church and that the Christians in, 
in this country can do something real about transforming not just our own lives, not just transforming our church, not even just transforming the community around us, but actually transforming a whole country. Now, of course, we, you know, when we think about transforming a country, I don't know about you, but I think about political systems and which are better. I think about economic systems, which are better and which are worse. And, and, and it doesn't take long to get into the argument of capitalism versus socialism or this kind of government versus that kind of government. That happens really quickly. And, and what do I know? I mean, I've got a degree in sociology, all three years of it. But, but I think there's a different way to start. I don't think we have to start there. I think we have to start with God's word. I think we have to turn to God and say, God, we, we genuinely believe that you've called us to be a people who transform. We, we genuinely believe, God, that the local church actually is the hope of the world. We genuinely believe that this world that we live in right now can be more like you planned and less like it is. And so I want, us, I want to invite you on a journey with us, with me, with our church family over the next three weeks as we explore this arrogant pup dream of transforming a country. Here's, here's the, for me, one of the exciting parts, is that the guide we're going to use, the, the, the root map we're going to use, you almost all, if you've been connected to Christianity or church in any way, already know in your head. You already know it. You can probably say it off by heart. Now, you may not all say it exactly the same, but it's in the Bible. And it's called the Lord's Prayer. And we, over the next three weeks, are gonna use that prayer as a guide to answering the question, can we transform a country? And so I wanna invite you this morning on that journey, not just for this Sunday, but for the Sundays to come, as, as we pursue this amazing, beautiful idea that a tr country can be transformed. Not only that it can be, but that it should be. And so, let me introduce you to our transformation guide. Matthew chapter six, the disciples wanna know how to pray. And Jesus says to them, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is how we are told by Jesus to pray. And I honestly believe that that prayer gives to us a guide, a, a roadmap for a journey if people are willing to say, I, I, I want to be part of transforming my country. I really do.
And so this morning, my job is to help us understand what transformation looks like and where you and I fit in and how we can embark on that journey. And so right up front, Jesus makes an announcement in this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we need to understand right up front that our destination is something that is defined not by politicians, not by an economic system, not by powers in the world, but by God. Where we want a country to go, where, where we want transformation to end up, what it must look like in the end, is defined by our Father in heaven. Now, I'm really privileged because I have a really great model of an earthly father. And, and I was the youngest, and, and sometimes you play the youngest card, you know? You, I mean, you do, you learn, you have to, otherwise you don't survive. And, and my dad would, would give me what he believed was best for me. But he also had three other children that he needed to do exactly the same for. And so as we, as we grapple with what the kingdom looks like, and as we struggle with, oh, it's not fair, that's not, we have to understand that we are talking to a father, but not only our father, but the father of everybody. And, and it's his job to tell us what his world looks like. Again and again, Jesus' disciples tried to like make the kingdom of God about the Jews and the Romans, and, and Jesus would keep on telling me, it's about our Father in heaven. And so we're going to look for his definition of what a transformed country looks like. Our Father, here's what we want to say to you, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where we want to go. We want our world to look like your kingdom looks. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be political structures and economic, there have to be, but our destination isn't a, a kind of political structure or a kind of economic solution. Our destination is what the kingdom of God looks like. And this isn't just for one day. Because Jesus makes it very clear, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. So this isn't just a spiritual idea that Jesus has. It is spiritual, but it's also a very real practical thing that you can see that makes a difference to people here and now. And so what does the kingdom of God look like? I mean, when Jesus says, that's what I want, Father, that's what we all must pray, your kingdom come, what does the kingdom of God look like? And so Jesus has lots to say. The, the, the New Testament is full of what the kingdom of God looks like. 
And so the first thing that I, I want to say, the first picture is that the kingdom of God looks like a place that is full of righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, how do I know that? Romans 14 verse 17 says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, in that passage, Paul is writing to the Romans. They, they, they're arguing with each other about what they're allowed to eat and what they're not allowed to eat, what Christians should eat and shouldn't eat. They're arguing about, about who their friends should be. They're not allowed to go there. Yes, you are. You know those arguments that never go anywhere? Socialism versus capitalism. This system of government versus that system of government. And, and we argue and, 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 and we're right and you're wrong and if you just did this, it would fix everything. And, and Paul wants the people to understand that those arguments end up nowhere if you don't start in the right place. If you don't start with the fact that the destination of the kingdom of God is a place of righteousness, peace, and joy. Imagine for a moment if all the citizens of our country experienced righteousness. If they all had equal access to the law. If, if law enforcement and and the court system treated rich and powerful people exactly the same as it treated poor people. I imagine if, if everybody was at peace. If everybody lived a life of being satisfied with what they had and, and, and wasn't grappling for more. Imagine if everybody had the experience of joy when they woke up in the morning because they, they, they weren't gonna need to desperately look for food today or, or hope that they get a job or, or be satisfied with the enormous pile of stuff they already have. The truth is, if you wake up in a country like that, the events of the last three weeks don't happen. I mean, they don't happen. And so the destination of, of the kingdom of God is an individual destination of salvation and of being in right relationship with God. But it's also a destination of, of everybody. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in, it doesn't say your salvation come or my ticket to heaven comes. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not the reason for it. The reason for it is the kingdom of God. And it is a place filled with righteousness, peace and joy and so often we end up with the arguments about this system or that system instead of saying what system do we need in order to achieve righteousness peace and joy and again the reminder in the Holy Spirit so again a reminder that it's God's principles it's not ours it's God's passion it's not ours it's, we may feel insignificant, but, but it's the Holy Spirit that's gonna do this. So, so a transformed country looks like a place of righteousness, 
peace and joy. There's a second aspect, there's a second piece of the kingdom that a transformed nation looks like. John the Baptist is having doubts about whether Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but I've got to say that that gives me quite a lot of comfort. Because Jesus himself said John the Baptist is the greatest person ever in the kingdom of God. Jesus said that. And here he is. He's in prison. He's been locked up. And he, he does, he's not sure if Jesus is the Messiah. He's not sure if Jesus is going to make the kingdom of God come. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one or is, are we, am I looking for somebody else? And this is how Jesus responds. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. A transformed nation is a healthy nation, a healthy country. And the truth is, this is not just about miraculous healings. Now, of course God does miraculous healings. And, 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 he, and we should pursue that and we should pray about that. But Jesus, it's clear from the way Jesus acts. And it's very clear from the way the early church acted. That this wasn't just a spiritual idea to them. That, that people who are sick in the absence of miracles must be cared for. Must be, must be encouraged, must be brought into society. It's why in the history of, of mankind, hospices and hospitals and leper colonies and all sorts of places were started by Christians because they knew this wasn't just a spiritual idea that Jesus was giving. Imagine a nation where when you are sick, you can get the kind of health care you need. Just imagine a nation like that. That it doesn't depend whether, you, whether you've got a big bank balance or not. That, that you get health care when you need it. And the truth is, that's not our, it's not just our country. It's easy to say, well, it's because our system is... But even very wealthy countries have... If some of the wealthy countries in the world, when you get a really bad disease, unless you've got good insurance, you're going bankrupt. This is the truth. But Jesus is saying, uh, uh, my kingdom looks like a place where people can miraculously and practically live in health because that's one of the aspects of the kingdom of God. Where it doesn't matter how you struggle, you can get what you need. But that same passage also points to something else about the kingdom of God. Not just that it's a healthy place, but it's also a prosperous place. Because you see it goes on to say, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, now there's two aspects to that. There's spiritual poverty, which we require to admit we have so that we can have a relationship with God. I, I, I can't help myself, God. I'm dead in my trespasses and I'm, I'm, I, am, I am poor spiritually. And, and the good news is you don't have to be because Jesus will give you all that he is spiritually. But it is also very clear that this isn't just about what's going on on the inside, it's also what's going on on the outside. 
that, that poverty is something that the kingdom of God is never about. Actual physical poverty. Now, <laughs> the bottom line is good news to the spiritually poor is that Jesus gives it to you. Good news to the physically poor is you, you will have food. You don't have to worry whether your kids are gonna get fed. You will have clothes, you will have enough. That's good news physically to the poor. And the kingdom of God looks like that. Our problem is we have our own definition of prosperity. When, when, when it says good news, and when we think of prosperous, you know, there's always the need for more. Does prosperous mean that every human being will have enough money to take a joyride into space? Or does prosperous mean that everybody every day will have enough to eat? That everybody every day will have a job? That everybody every day will have clothes to put on? Now, I don't want to steal where we're going in the rest of the series, but you know, there's something about that later on. God's definition of prosperity is that everybody has what they need every single day. Now we get into the economics argument. And I don't want to go there because I don't know what that looks like in an economic system but I know that that's what the kingdom of God says we need to pursue, that that's where God says we need to go. And I'm also reminded at this point that Jesus says something else about the kingdom of God, that it's hard for a rich person to enter it. Because the truth is for everybody to have enough in the world that we live in today, those of us who have more than enough may be required to give up some of the more than enough that we have. And it's hard. I don't care what anybody says, it's hard. But that's what the kingdom of God looks like. Because not only is the kingdom of God prosperous, the kingdom of God is also just. It is just. Jesus uses a, a quite a difficult story to explain this. It's, it's a story of um, a guy who owns a vineyard and he needs to harvest. And he goes and he, and he hires a bunch of people early in the day and they work all day and then he discovers he needs more and so he keeps going back and back and back to the market to get more people. Last group only worked for an hour. And then at the end of the day, he pays everybody their wages and he pays them the same. <laughs> and the Oaks at the beginning of the day are not happy. Like, oh, no, 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 no. And then the owner says, listen, this is my vineyard. This is my money. You agreed right up front that it was a fair thing that I was doing. Why are you complaining now? There's, there's two really important lessons right there. The one is the spiritual lesson. And it, it's the fact that if I commit my life to Jesus in the last second of my life, or I commit my life to Jesus when I'm three years old, I get the same reward. I get to live eternally with God. But it also has a very practical lesson here now. That although God does reward and does bless, and, and, and that's right, 
This idea that I have a right to more than somebody else in this world is basically anti the kingdom of God. And I may have it, and I'm not wrong if I've got it, but to say I have a right to that because of, I've worked hard or because of anything else is anti the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is just. And the, the reality is, as somebody who's lived with privilege my whole life, it just feels hard for me when, when it looks like playing fields are going to get made equal. I'm like, whoa, whoa. are you gonna take some of my stuff away to do that? And, and so I, I feel like it's not justice, but it is, because the owner of the field says, hey, it's not you who decides who gets what, it's me. And my justice is equal for everybody. The kingdom of God is just. Think of that world for a moment. Think of that as our destination. You've got to come to this conclusion that what happened the last few weeks in our country can't happen in a world that looks like that. It can't. And so I don't know about you, but I want to go there. I want to go there. Not only because it, it would be wonderful, but because it's where God calls me. And so if, if, if you're with me and want to go there, where should we start? Where should we start if that's our destination? And again, this passage gives, well, the kingdom of God tells us where we should start. So a bunch of Pharisees are arguing with Jesus and they're talking about you know, what it's gonna look like when the kingdom of God, and is it gonna happen then, and is it gonna happen then? And Jesus says, whoa, slow down. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. You see, we, we focus on the outside, and, and we've got to get to the outside. I, I, please don't, this is not all theoretical. We've got to get to the outside. But Jesus is saying, the outside is not where we start. The inside is where we start, because the kingdom of God is within you. I, I, I don't know if I always believe that. I don't know if I always believe that. Bird, I don't know if you always believe that. You know, Barry, I don't know if you always believe that. But that's what Jesus says. It is within us. And if it's within us, that's where we need to start. Since Francis of Assisi said this, sanctify yourself and you will sanctify society. Sanctify yourself and you will sanctify society. I don't know about you, but I felt so many of the solutions to the problems we experienced these last three weeks was about somebody else. If they just didn't do that, or if he didn't just do that, or if those people just didn't do that, but Jesus is saying the solution is within us. It starts with you and me. And if that's true, and I believe it is because Jesus said it is, I need to know some things. Because if you've got my personality, you just want to go out there, do big things, and sort big problems out. I mean, that's just my nature. I'm that kind of person. But, but I'm not an exception. 
and neither are you. And so I have to start within me. And it's so important to know because the temptation at this point is to go, well, I'm, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. And so I'm not even gonna start this journey because I'm not gonna be able to go there. But there's some other things that Jesus says about the kingdom that undercut that excuse that I can't go there. And the first one is this, that the kingdom of God is stealthy. The kingdom of God is stealthy. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable and he says this, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. They're tiny. And that parable goes on to talk about the fact that it gets big and then the birds of the air come and nest in it. So this, this tiny little thing that's inside you, this tiny little kindness, this tiny little generosity, this kind, tiny little piece of justice, potentially says in God's hands, I can grow up into a huge bush and, and people can come and rest in it. Goes on to say the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. There's a lot of baking that happens in my house. And, and most of it is successful, but every now and again, it's not. And often, the success or failure is based on the incorrect measurement of a small ingredient. It's not like we forgot to put the 12 eggs in. You know, we forgot to put, I don't know, the yeast in. Flop. Isn't it beautiful that you can be yeast? Smelly, no, no, that's not really what that's about. But that your tiny few little grains, that God works into the world wherever you are, in your job or in your school, or in your retirement village or in your family, God works it in and it changes all 30 kilograms. See, the kingdom of God is stealthy. But here's my end warning to all of us. The kingdom of God is all of those things. But if we're gonna go on this journey, we need to understand this, that the kingdom of God is costly. The kingdom of God is costly. I don't want us to go into this blind. I don't want us as a church to go, we can transform our nation and think that it's gonna be easy and it's just gonna be something that'll magically happen. It is costly. There's so many stories about how costly the kingdom of God is. And Jesus often says things to his disciples like, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. He, just, he says it. It's costly. The kingdom of heaven is like... a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought the field. I wonder what he felt like after he'd hidden it, and I mean, I'm assuming it took him a while to sell all his assets. I wonder if he, if he wondered if it was still going to be there when he got back. Oh, somebody else found it. Has somebody else stolen it? There was that moment of risk. And sometimes when we face things like we faced these last three weeks, it's tempting to go, no, 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 the kingdom of God isn't here. It's not working. It's too hard. But it's there. We are told that, that this thing is 
costly. And it's going to cost all of us. Jesus said it. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you must be the servant of everybody. Jesus said, no greater love has a man in this than he lay down his life for a friend. For you and I to have access to the kingdom of God, Jesus died. That's how costly it was. But here's the other side of costly. A thing that is costly is precious. And, 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 and the kingdom of God is the most precious thing there is in the world. I mean, don't we all, doesn't every human being yearn for joy and peace and righteousness and, and, and to be free of guilt and sin and shame and struggle? There's no human being that doesn't desire and strive for that. And that's what the kingdom of God promises. And, and it's within us. And it's coming out of us. And the kingdom of God is the most precious, precious thing. Not only is it the most precious thing that you can have, it's also the most precious thing you can give away. I, I along with all my heart, for us as a church community to go, we can transform our country. We can. But it's, how's it gonna look? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm gonna invite us to start where we started the service. If we're going to transform our country, where do we start? We start with God. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and we are going to begin by our Father in heaven. We're gonna begin by saying, God, what, what transformed country looks like is about you, not about us. It's about where you want us to go and how you want us to live. Lord, as we, as a church family, we've spoken so much about transformation. But Lord, we, we genuinely, as a church family, believe that this transformation isn't just about us and our own personal lives, or even about our church community, or even about the community of Westville. It is about our nation. And Lord, you can bring your kingdom, and we can be part of it. And Lord, we don't know what that destination looks like, but we do know that it is filled with righteousness and peace and joy. And we wanna join you on that journey, Father, as your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's worship together.